Last One to the Party, the podcast where we check in with someone who's checking out a classic film, long-running TV show, or legendary performer for the very first time. We measure things by what we are. To the maggots in the cheese, the cheese is a universe. To the worms in the corpse, the corpse is the cosmos. How then can we be so cocksure about our world? Just because of our telescopes and microscopes and the splitting of the atom? Certainly not. Science is but an organized system of ignorance. There are more things in heaven and on earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. What do we know about the beyond? Do we know what's behind the beyond? I'm afraid some of us hardly know what's beyond the behind. Creatures of twilight and illusion, we drift and drift toward our unknown ends. And that's why I feel the best thing is not to be born. But who is as lucky as that? To whom does it happen? Not to one among millions and millions of people. My name is Theodore. That is Brother Theodore. I first became aware of him on the original Late Night with David Letterman. He would bring him out and let him do his monologues, and Letterman would poke fun at him. You try to play the charming, sweet, good, lovely guy, and whenever it comes to me, not with the others, Mm -hmm. but when it comes to me, you always know how to bring out the worst in me, and I'm sick of it. And he was fascinating because he was very dark and, I guess, German expressionistic and cynical. And um, he originally came to public attention but by doing his show, which he did forever, but also on the Merv Griffin show in the 60s. And I was drawn to him immediately because he had that uh, absurdist kind of beatnik foundation although he was clearly older than the beatniks were he was older than ginsburg or william s burroughs certainly older than kerouac and neil cassidy and so on and so forth he has that intellectual cynical dark sensibility and that was from the very beginning and he was originally billed as theodore and then it was merv griffin who who christened him brother theodore and in fact here's an intro that merv gave him on his show to brother theodore the most nourishing part of the apple is the worm. I found he is a pathological pessimist. He feels bad when he feels good, and I suspect he will feel worse when he feels better. Ladies and gentlemen, you will love to hate him. Here is Brother Theodore. You can find that clip on YouTube, and um, it's basically him sparring with Jerry Lewis, who at the time was the hero of the audience they were on his side during that whole thing but now he just comes across as a pompous jackass who doesn't get theodore's bit because it's art and jerry lewis doesn't understand art and that's fine he's done some fine comedy but i think the record will show that he's a blowhard and an a-hole and has a bigger had a bigger opinion of himself than maybe he deserved certainly hugely popular with dean martin for 10 solid years but you know you know Hardly working. I mean, whoa, he's almost 60 playing a guy who is a man-child? Okay. 
But yeah, so Theodore was this sensation in New York. And when I was in New York in the 90s, when I first moved there in the early, early 90s, he was still doing his show on 13th Street. And I went to see it because I had to because we watched Theodore on Letterman. It was like a ritual with my friends to watch Letterman every night. And then Highland, who you've heard on a previous episode about Watermelon Man and Putney Swope, his friend got a copy of the only album that Theodore ever made, and he put it on cassette, and we all made copies of it and listened to it over and over and over. And it's certain certain phrases just <laughs> ring in our heads to this day. And so that became kind of a minor cult-like obsession for us that, that seemed to fit the particular struggles we were all going through you know, at Berkeley College of Music, trying to find your identity and convince yourself that you're not a fraud. But I've got some samples from some of his pieces from that album for you. And this first one is supposedly from a Chinese fable, an ancient Chinese fable about a fig tree where a toad and a centipede have a rivalry and the toad is trying to one-up the centipede. But the old toad, who always lingered under the stone, despised the fig tree because he was rooted to the ground. And the centipede she hated because he was so slick and fast. And she couldn't even devour him, for he was very tough and had blood that was carbonated. Ah carbonated blood and so she hated him hated him even more hated hated ah! you have no idea how she hated him the centipede bowed and throwing a thousand passionate kisses to his audience he darted over, he darted over to the big stone, his dancing place, and glided about in such twists, such turns, such circles, such curves, that all, all closed their eyes, dazzled. Tell me, O oh marvelous centipede, how can it be that always, always you know which of your feet must take the first step? Which the second one? Which the third one? Which must move forth? Which fifth? Which sixth? Whether now your seventh foot ought to step forward, or the hundreds, what the seventeenth does meanwhile, and the thirty-third, whether they pause or move on, what you should do with the seventy-fourth when you have reached the twenty-eighth? Should it be raised and the forty-ninth be set down? And what of the ninety-fifth? Must it be bent? And the 68th be stretched, stretched, stretched. Tell me, pray tell me, 
poor, wet, slimy, slippery thing that I am. Wretched thing with only four legs. Four legs. While you have a hundred, a hundred legs. Pray tell me how, 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 how can it be done, oh marvelous, oh most magnificent centipede? And one of the things certainly that drew me to Brother Theodore was this, again, this sort of expressionistic approach to all of this, where there were these big tonal changes in how he would go from, you know, shrieking in anguish about this thing, furious, and then switch gears completely. Uh, that always tickled me as well as just the absurdest things that he would throw in. At this point, I should like to debunk one of your pet superstitions. We do not hear with our ears. I repeat that. We do not hear with our ears. Our ears are mere window dressing, as useful as a glass eye at a keyhole. Man hears with his left hind leg. That upsets all your grammar school notions, doesn't it? And I always thoroughly enjoy a good turn of a phrase like, that upsets all of your grammar school notions. There's another piece where he talks about supposed health advice and how we're all being forced alive at the point of a gun. <laughs> Things like that always crack me up. So then this next snippet is from a, a piece called The Willow Landscape, and it's about a painting that a rich man covets uh, from the painter who owes him money. And this is just one snippet from that. He was a man of exquisite tastes, a collector of rare and beautiful things. He had heard of Shiliang's painting, and one day he came to look at it. He was delighted. He would buy it, he said. Would pay twice its value. Yes, three times its value. In fact, he would, in exchange for the picture, cancel all and everything that Shiliang owed him. And would Shiliang be good enough to have the picture delivered to the palace tomorrow in the morning? Tomorrow in the morning. Immortal sorrow took possession of Shiliang. In the weariness of his days, how could he go on living without his picture? But he knew. The fulfillment of his creditor's wish was the only way to repay his debt. He bowed. The Mandarin left. Now, the really fascinating thing about Theodore, which in retrospect is not as surprising, is that he, he was born into a wealthy Jewish family in Dusseldorf. And he went to university, and about the time he was in his early 30s, the Nazis had come to power and he was imprisoned at Dachau and he stayed there until he agreed to sign over his family's fortune for apparently one Reichsmark, one dollar, however much that would be. So he was he was given his life basically to sell his entire fortune for one dollar and then he moved to Switzerland and got deported and was back in Austria until his friend Albert Einstein helped him escape to England, where he then later got to 
New York. But then he leaves New York and moves to California. <laughs> he has a real Goodwill hunting thing where he's a janitor at Stanford. But he's demonstrating his prowess at chess by beating 30 professors simultaneously. He later worked docs. He did all these things. And then he started getting into movies. And he has a bit part in an Orson Welles movie. And not much, but little parts here and there. Mostly B movies. Although he did, he did voice Gollum in the 1977 animated version of The Hobbit. And he later is in The Burbs with Tom Hanks and Bruce Dern and a bunch of other people. And then, you know, again, he was this monologist telling these stories. And it started off with just doing Edgar Allan Poe recitals, unsurprisingly. <laughs> you know, dark poetry. Uh, but then, as I said, he, he was on the Merv Griffin show nearly 40 times. Uh, I guess he was, it's, you know, according to what I found online, he also appeared on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. But I've, I find, I'm having a hard time finding that. I'm, I do remember firsthand seeing him on Letterman. You can see those clips online as well. So he's he's been in some mostly B movies and I've managed to find two of them and they are terrible and he's just doing his thing when they go to him and he's in these isolated scenes that don't really matter uh but one of them is the massage parlor murders and it's from 1973 and it's exactly what you would think it's that softcore thing and gums which is also even more terrible and softcore-ish it's a weird hard R soft core parody of Jaws. Yeah, it's hard to understand. And to give you an indication of the level of humor, he is playing the role of Captain Carl Clitoris. That's from 76. Massage Parlor Murders is from 73. Those those things don't represent him. You can find his his monologues and his interactions with Letterman on on YouTube, and that really represents more of of what more of what he does. And apparently, Theodore also was quite a ladies' man up until he died, pretty much when he was ninety four. I would think in his eighties. There's a clip of Eric Bogosian talking about him dating a woman who was in her forties when he was in his eighties. Um, so that's kind of fascinating and unexpected. Yeah, so he he had a real resurgence. His first real resurgence was in the late 70s. He was appearing on The Tomorrow Show with Tom Snyder, and I guess, you know, according to what I'm finding online, The Tonight Show, it was Letterman that really brought him to prominence, and it was those early days of Letterman. And and that show, it's, it's tough to go back and, and recreate the entire feeling of a time, but when that show came on in 82, and of course, a hundred times more people than watched his morning show claimed to have watched his morning show, uh, I think I maybe saw it twice or clips of it, pieces of it twice. But his late night show was really interesting and radical. And one of the things I always enjoyed about it was that it sounded like it was a very small house. So it felt very intimate that you were watching this show at 1230 and it felt like it was a select few of you who were getting it. And among the things he did was bring on Brother Theodore, as I mentioned, and he would kind of deflate him, which I always found disappointing because I, as we're finding out and discovering, I have a penchant for these kinds of performance artist things and i sort of want that person to yes and it and invest in it um but letterman kind of had to puncture the moment and it's totally fine he did a billy crystal special billy crystal did a special and had brother theodore in it and um it's it's not great but christopher guest is in it and you know brother theodore is on it so these there are these things that you can find online for us coveting this one cassette tape that we had the the piece de resistance was what is side two of the album. 
um, and is the last track on our cassettes that we all dubbed. Our, in our version, it faded out because it was a little too long for one side of the cassette that Highland's friend initially dubbed it on. And I've since found a, a version that has the whole thing. And I was oh, there's an extra three, four minutes here. Anyway, it's a long piece about quadrupedism and how we need to get back down on all fours because that's where your health lies. Now, there's an interesting thing about this, that there was a piece in the movie Semi-Tough with Burt Reynolds and Chris Christopherson and Robert Preston and Jill Clayburgh, where the owner of the team, the football team, is talking about crawling and getting back down on your belly to help, you know, stay sharp. Billy Clyde, did you crawl when you was a kid? I don't rightly remember, Big Ed. Well, how about creeping? You remember creeping before you walked? Not exactly. Well, that's what I thought. That's why you're getting pulled down from behind on that end sweep. Your rear space ain't protected. You out of line with gravity, Billy Clyde. That's your trouble. A man gets born. The natural way is to start crawling and creeping as soon as he can. That way he gets himself back in line with gravity. Now you get that settled, you're ready to stand up and walk. Ready to move forward with the safe knowledge that he's protected on all sides, including the backside. You without that knowledge, Billy Clyde, you sure as shit going through life unprotected, unhappy, and unhelpful to your team. I can't help but wonder if that the screenwriter was a fan in any way, shape, or form of, of Brother Theodore's and, and sort of took a little bit of inspiration from that. Another famous monologue that he went on was, was food, about how people shouldn't eat food. Um, and in his stage show... I think there was a point where he would just be sta staring at the audience in this tiny black box theater, downtown New York. You know, it had that moldy black box theater smell. And he'd stare at the audience for far too long. And then he would just throw his arms up and he would shout, milk! And then he would go into his <laughs> food or something. And it was, again, just so absurd. I really loved it. One of, one of my few minor, minor regrets, regrets with a very small R, not a big R, not a capital R regret, is not having seen Brother Theodore more than the one time I went. I went one time and was like, I've done it. I've seen Brother Theodore. And I, I wish I'd just motivated myself to go one other time. He died in 2001. I was there for a good 10 years before he died. I lived in New York until 2011. So I could have gone to see him, but just forgot about it. I don't know what, but at least I went. My roommates Highland and Warren and I used to listen to that tip, and I gave Warren a shout-out couple of episodes again hello warren always thinking of you we used to listen to brother theodore a lot and it was really great because it was so dark and bizarre and you know i i think about when all of this hit me and it was at at music school when you're for me anyway struggling to find out am i actually good at this am i deluding myself where do i fit in this hierarchy all, all of these things that are kind of attacking your self-image in addition to that, in my first year at Berkeley, there was a teacher's strike. So we had two weeks of the teachers being on strike and them trying to figure out how to deal with it. And all of their classes are, are, are gradated. So if you're in, you know, Harmony 2, there might be three different speeds of Harmony 2. But they had the department heads teaching this class. And they would have to teach to the slowest common denominator. And I went to these classes that first week that they offered him and it was listen not to brag but I had a private teacher who taught at Berkeley and so he taught me all of Berkeley's harmony nomenclature and so I was in harmony four and I was in the advanced one because I'd been exposed to all of it really it's not that I'm 
so gifted. But I was bored. And so we just, a bunch of us just kind of punted for two weeks and did nothing. And it got, you know, it got a little dark. We started, we got water guns that looked like machine guns before such a thing was outlawed. Uh, and we used to play a game of like tag with these squirt guns late at night in the dorms. <laughs> and it was crazy. I think people looked at us like we were crazy. Uh, and then one friend of mine knew something about Dungeons and Dragons. And so he crafted a Dungeons and Dragons game that we all played, but it was set in Vietnam because it was the eighties and we were all obsessed with rewriting history and winning that war. Uh, with all the movies that came out. So we did that. There's a lot of dark things going on. And then shortly after that, you know, Brother Theodore lands in my lap. So it, it all fit in quite snugly. But here is here are selections from his piece de resistance, the epic quadrupedism. My friends, I'm here tonight to show you the way. I'm here tonight to share a great truth with you. I'm here tonight to dehypnotize you, to free you, from a deadly collective obsession. I'm a voice for those who dare not speak. I'm a cry for hearts that suffer in silence. And I'm here tonight to tell you what needs to be told. I feel an itch for public service and I've got to scratch it. In this best of all possible worlds, everything is in a hell of a mess. Everyone knows it. Everyone has a different explanation for it. But all these explanations are bunk. Not money, or the lack of it. Not the atom bomb, or the hydrogen bomb, or the cobalt bomb are responsible for our plight. Not capitalism or socialism, not militarism or pacifism, not cannibalism or ventriloquism. None of these are to blame. None of these are at fault. They are mere symptoms. They are mere manifestations of an evil that is deeper rooted. The true cause of our problems and pains, the basic cause of our headaches and heartaches and torments and turmoils and calamities and crimes, the real cause has been hidden from us. You are being murdered, my friends, day after day as long as you live. Never ask for whom the grave is dug. It's dug for you. You are in walking distance of your grave. But you can't see it. Tears shed by your left eye are blinding your right eye. Tears shed by your right eye are blinding your left eye. Wake up! We are not suffering from a million or more diseases, but from one disease and one only, the hidden disease the original, the fundamental disease, and it cannot be cured by chemistry or surgery, by skullduggery or blackstrap molasses. Back, my friends, back, I say, back to the position nature gave us in the beginning. Down, down, I say, down on all fours. In these days of darkness and doubt, of crisis and confusion, what the world needs is a truly great soul. I am that soul. I'm a thinker of thoughts. I see the relationship between things that are utterly unrelated. I am a cosmodynamic personality 
walking in beauty and eternal youth on all fours. On record covers, I look like a pile of mud, but that's only because photography is still in its infancy. I am what you might call a controversial figure. People either hate me or despise me. You swallow another pill and say, shut up, body. Shut up, mind. Shut up, soul. But they won't shut up. Fungus. Decomposed protein. Scrofula. Disgruntled liver bile. Wriggle their way into your blood. Cripple your anatomy. Mutilate your metabolism. Causing spaghetti deficiency and crumbling of the T-bone leading to overweight and adultery, opening the door to lockjaw, housemaid's knee, and compulsive, uncalled for laughter. Won't you try it? The sublime bliss of quadrupedism, the unspeakable joy of four-leggedism. I need fellow crusaders. I need you, my friends, with your splendid intellects. The world needs you. Your loved ones need you. Won't you help me? Help you help them? I can't do it alone, friends. I am not the reincarnated Joan of Arc or something. I'm just plain folks. By your apathy, by your complacency, by your two-legged indifference, you have made this beautiful wide, wide world an insult to creation. You have made it the dung heap of the universe. Uh, let me read you an article from the Woman's Daily Digest. It is entitled, What Has This World Come To? Let me read it to you verbatim, my friends, just as I found it bound and filed in the pornographic division of the New York Pornographic Library. Here it is, and I quote. A young man of good character and solid background visits a local dive, the Dirty Shame Cafe. There he finds liquor and lipstick and laughter and song, also cigarette spittle and two-legged entertainment. After a while, 15 beers under his belt, his money spent, his morals impaired, he's kicked out of the joint. Bleary-eyed, belching, spewing, cussing right and left, he gropes his way home. All right, ma, he says. Dish out the dough and make it snappy. I've got to get back to the dancing school. Merely listening to Brother Theodore doesn't make you a quadrupedist any more than going to a garage makes you an automobile. Brother Theodore doesn't grow on every bush. You can't pick the cherries out of his pie and reject the thorns of his roses. And then lastly, there's just one snippet that I want to include because uh, there's many tiny things that I do in my life, little uh, references that I make that I feel like probably I only know what those references are or maybe two other people in the whole world. And I will sometimes do a Brother Theodore thing. And I'm sure nobody recognizes it because I don't do it exactly the way he does it. And but also literally it's like me, Warren and Highland would know this reference and Andrew, who we had on talking about working girl. Uh, I, I gave him a copy of Brother Theodore and he's an aficionado of it as well now, too. 
so maybe he would get what it's from, but unless he obsessed about it the way we did, and it's hard to obsess about things if you're not somewhere between the ages of 12 and 24, who has the time, I will do this quite a bit. The young man gives a short laugh. If you'd like to follow Jessica online, you can find her on Instagram at Jessica underscore Elena underscore Eason. And Elena is E-L-A-I-N-A. Jessica underscore Elena underscore Eason. You can follow me on Instagram at James underscore Eason underscore music. The show is produced and edited by me, James Eason, and the theme music is composed by me, James Eason. (laughs) 